Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. So how can we make this case? Well, one way we can do it is to point out to people that there's no essential difference between the embryos you once were and the adults you are today that would justify killing you at that earlier stage. Arguments cannot be religious or non-religious. Arguments can either be valid or invalid, or sound or unsound. The substance view is the idea that from when you come into existence of fertilization until you die naturally, you are the same individual at every point in your life. So if it is wrong to kill you now, it was wrong to kill you then. Hello and welcome to Pro-Life Thinking, a Life Training Institute podcast in which we will talk about the abortion issue and larger issues related to bioethics in a way that's winsome, reasonable, and persuasive. I'm Clinton Wilcox, your host, and I'm joined by my co-host, Nathan Apodaca. How's it going over there, Nathan? A little warm. Yes, it most definitely is that. I'm not sure how warm it gets in, in San Diego, but we've been in triple degrees for the past few days over here. Yeah, we just joined you in that. I'm kind of wishing we had left that heat back in the early summer, but... Oh, well. Yeah. Hopefully it'll cool down before too long. Yeah. At least by the time this show releases on Sunday, then the audience will be wondering what we're talking about. Right. (laughs) Yeah. Now, we're Advocates and Voices for the Unborn with Life Training Institute, whose mission is to equip pro-life advocates to graciously and persuasively defend their pro-life views in the marketplace of ideas and in our culture. We believe in the radical idea that it's wrong to kill innocent human beings, whether born or unborn, and we're here to equip you to defend that idea in a culture that celebrates a woman's right to choose. Near the end of our show, we usually talk about our upcoming events and well, as you're probably aware, there's been a flood in Houston. There's been a, a hurricane that's been kind of buffeting certain areas in Texas around the, the Gulf of Mexico, and uh, and that has led to some flooding in Houston. And as a result, I was supposed to do a radio show when I go to Texas uh, next week, but that's going to affect that, and we're not actually going to be broadcasting there in Houston. Uh, I'm actually going to be Skyping in this week, and we're going to be um, do, doing a radio show, and he's going to be... Um, I'm not sure where where he's going to be, but uh, but basically, I'm not going to be able to to go to Houston. Uh, at least, I'm, I'm not entirely sure what the situation is going to be like. But I'm not probably not going to be able to to go to Houston like I'd originally planned. And so, I'm going to be actually be skyping in with him this week, and we're going to do our radio show. And so, by the time this episode airs on Sunday, it will already have been broadcast live. But as soon as I as soon as he tells me where we're going to where this where that broadcast is going to appear, he's going to put it up on a podcast. Then uh, I'll let everyone know in case you're curious and in, in talk in hearing that. So, so the flood in Houston has kind of affected my uh, my plans regarding that. But my event in Dallas is still going to go on, and I'll talk about that here at the end of the show. And so, um, so aside from not being able to go to Houston as originally planned, our of course our thoughts and our prayers are going out to the people who are affected by the flood, especially in the uh, areas closer to the Gulf of Mexico. 
So today's topic for our show is we're going to be talking about how to argue intellectually versus emotionally. And this is going to be sort of a follow-up to last week's episode. Not really a part two per se, but more like a spiritual successor, I guess you could say. So we're going to be addressing this. We're going to be talking about some more about logical fallacies. We're going to kind of just review them a little bit. And then we're going to just talk briefly about how to engage intellectually versus emotionally. Now, last week when I talked about the logical fallacy, the informal logical fallacy of begging the question, I gave an argument from situations. And I wanted to review this because as I was listening to our last episode, our last week's episode after I uploaded it, I realized that without further explanation, it sounds just like a regular valid deductive argument. And so I kind of wanted to go back over that real quick. Now, question-begging arguments are actually logically valid, but they're unpersuasive because they fail to provide adequate evidence for the conclusion, which is why they're listed under fallacies of presumption. So once again, if we're talking about, for example, a woman who's in poverty, the argument might run something like this. Premise one, some women are too poor to afford a child. Premise two, all women who are too poor to afford a child need abortion. The conclusion, some women need abortion. Now, in this case, whether the argument is question-begging or not depends on whether you adequately support your premises. The reason that arguments like these beg the question is because they assume, without argument, that it is okay to kill the unborn. They would never accept this argument when it comes to killing toddlers or adolescents. So the question this argument begs is, why is it acceptable to kill the unborn but not older children for this reason? Just to jump in and caveat off of that, to make the argument not beg the question one would have to add an additional premise and say that abortion is not morally wrong or establish that somehow the unborn are not human. And so if the unborn are not human, then this argument is a very sound and strong one. But if the unborn are human, then the person presenting this argument will need to account for that. Now, to just change topics a little bit, we've talked a little bit, I think we covered it last week, the ad hominem fallacy. Now, ad hominem is a Latin term meaning to the man. So you literally make your argument to the man or to the woman. So an example of the common, of the ad hominem fallacy would be, suppose, say, two guys, they're um, both involved in a lawsuit with each other, and one says to the judge, he says, well, my opponent over here, um, the reason why he uh, is losing this case is because he's ugly, his kids are ugly, his wife is ugly, they have dogs that bark at all times of the night. You should obviously rule in my favor. Well, it doesn't follow. Suppose that his opponent in this courtroom setting is all of those things. Suppose he is very ugly and his whole family's ugly. It doesn't mean the judge should automatically rule in the plaintiff or defendant's favor. That has to be established based on the soundness of the opponent or plaintiff's case. So, In regards to the abortion issue, one of the most common, in fact, probably the most common ad hominem fallacy is bringing up the issue of gender. And one cannot go very far in a conversation about abortion with the issue of the pro-life advocate's gender arising. And somehow, as of late, race and class and political affiliation are coming up as well. And it's always a directive whenever the speaker is a man, although I have seen a humorous example of this. I was doing a pro-life outreach one time, and... There was a group of pro-choice protesters who were out there saying, oh, well, you, don't, you can't get pregnant, so you have no say in this. And then they actually realized we did have women out there with us, so they made a new sign, one of their picket signs that said, mind your own uterus. So apparently gender was never relevant to begin with. But as we have discussed before, and since arguments and ideas do not have genders, then the, quite literally gender is irrelevant. 
the people making the arguments have a gender, but even then, gender doesn't automatically make an argument valid or invalid. And the assertion is really meaningless. And to put it plainly, simply because myself or Clinton lack the sexual organs necessary to carry a child to term does not mean that we are somehow mentally incapable of reasoning to the correct conclusion regarding the ethics surrounding the abortion debate. I mean, it's not as if the neurons in my head right now are somehow unable to establish a clear connection whenever the topic of the ethical issues surrounding abortion do arise. I mean, the idea is completely ridiculous, and it's also a bit insulting. And plus, some of the strongest arguments in favor of abortion have been presented by men. I think of uh, David Boonin with his book, A Defense of Abortion. He's made some very strong arguments, even though he himself will never be pregnant or never has been pregnant. And likewise, there are some very strong pro-life advocates who are women. You have people like Abby Johnson and Rose, who are both women, obviously, and yet they stand against abortion, and they present many of the same reasons that we do to conclude that abortion is morally wrong. So gender really is not relevant to the question of whether abortion is right or wrong. However, there is a slightly more complicated argument that has become popular as of lately. And the argument is that since men, and kind of touching on what I just said, is that since men, myself included, are not able to experience the emotional, physical, and even financial circumstances that may arise due to being in an unplanned pregnancy, it is therefore inappropriate or ignorant for men to speak on the issue. And there is a bit of a valid concern here. It is a very tough situation that many women going through a crisis pregnancy will find themselves in, and they do deserve the utmost of our sympathy and support. Somebody like me who has never been pregnant before and never will be, I may not be able to understand exactly the mindset of a woman in that situation. And likewise, actually, my friend uh, Patty Smith, who we had on the show a few weeks ago talking about Silent No More and post-abortion healing, she makes a really great point is to sympathize with the women who are considering abortion because many of them are in a very tough situation. Now, even with this in mind, it is important to understand that the pro-life arguments that we are putting forth are not based upon any experiences that someone may have had. And although there are pro-life advocates who have experienced both unplanned pregnancy and abortion itself. So, for example, pro-life philosopher Chris Kayser, uh, he gave a very moving TED Talk. I believe it was at the beginning of this year. It was titled, Why Children Help Parents Flourish. And he actually talked about this when his first child was born was it was an unplanned pregnancy. And yet he, him and his, I believe it was his girlfriend at the time who was now his wife, they chose life for their child. So it's not that pro-life advocates are completely unaware of this. Many pro-life advocates have been in these situations before. But it's not the situations or the experiences of those situations that matter. It's the objective discoverable truths about the nature of the unborn, the nature of abortion, and more broadly, what it means to be human that are what's going to matter in the end. The Declaration of Independence articulates this well when it labels these truths as self-evident truths. We can know these regardless of our gender or race or class or political affiliation. And they are discoverable and understandable apart from any experience one may have personally had with an abortion, whether a good or a bad experience. And whether the act of elective abortion is a moral right or wrong is dependent on the nature of the unborn entity that is killed. Like I said, not dependent on the current experience of the mother. So, like I pointed out, it's 
the pro-life argument is based on objective truths that are not dependent on experience. And second, there are many pro-life women and men who have been through these situations who do recognize and articulate the same, articulate the same arguments and truths as pro-life men like myself and Clinton. There's also something underlying the gender argument that is a bit more subtle and needs to be called into focus. And as Nancy Piercy points out in her book, Finding Truth, uh, the issue at the core of the gender argument or the race argument is actually relativism. And she points out in her book, Finding Truth, which is a really good book, actually, for analyzing worldviews, uh, she points out there's a subtle form of postmodern relativism that is inherent in many issues related to identity politics. And basically the underlying assumption is that the experiences that one may have had within society based on their race or gender or the likelihood they have experienced, that they will experience those, it, that is what determines the validity of the claim that he or she is making. The trouble with this is it doesn't really work in determining the validity of an argument or truth claim. It simply reflects a statistical truth of current human behavior. So, for example, as a white male, I may not be as likely to experience sexual or racial discrimination, but it doesn't mean that I am incapable of knowing that sexual and racial discrimination are morally wrong. They're morally wrong because of the shared human nature that we've talked about on here before, not because I have or have not experienced that. Now, another thing left to talk about regarding fallacies, which we didn't actually mention last time, is that most fallacies are not always fallacies. It depends on how they are used. Unfortunately, when it comes to logical argument, what usually happens, especially in debates over social media, is that someone without logical training comes across a list of fallacies, then starts treating every argument as a game of spot the fallacy, where they try to accuse you of making logical fallacies you're not actually making. Ad hominem fallacies, for example, are sometimes legitimate. If a person testifying in a courtroom is accused of being a habitual liar, this is not a fallacious ad hominem argument. Being a habitual liar is not an irrelevant characteristic of the arguer's personality, but is a legitimate character trait that could put his testimony into doubt. Also, simply, simply calling someone a name is unkind, but it is not fallacious unless the person's argument is being rejected because of the name they are being called. Now, this is true for some other fallacies as well, such as the no true Scotsman fallacy, saying, for example, that no true Christian would ever have an abortion would commit the no true Scotsman fallacy because we don't become perfect once we become Christians. However, saying no true Christian would deny God exists does not commit the no true Scotsman fallacy because one of the defining characteristics of Christianity is that it's a monotheistic religion. So if you deny that God exists, you're not in any real sense a Christian. So context is key. This is why all arguments should be engaged with before you try to dismiss it as being fallacious. Trying to dismiss it as fallacious without interacting with it is just intellectual laziness. Now, it has been well said that there is a problem in our modern culture that people confuse thinking with feeling. This is another thing you find often if you engage with people on any topic, especially an emotionally charged topic like abortion. Put simply, arguing intelligently is when you engage with with logical argumentation, and arguing emotionally is when you allow your emotions to guide your reasoning. But in fact, the appeal to emotion is a recognized logical fallacy. This fallacy is committed when you manipulate a person's emotions in order to win an argument. The appeal to pity, which we talked about last week, is a type of appeal to emotion fallacy. Now, of course, this doesn't mean that you should keep emotion out of your argumentation altogether, as the Stoics used to believe. 
We don't want an army of Mr. Spocks out there arguing from pure, cold logic and leaving all emotion out of it. That comes off as unfeeling and cruel. In fact, your emotions can be beneficial because they can spur you into action, especially when your reason comes to a conclusion about someone's human rights being violated. But it does mean that you can't allow your emotions to overtake your logical reason and do the thinking for you. We are rational creatures. One of the things that sets us apart from lower animals is that we don't have to let our passions control us. So while it's difficult to go through a time where a loved one needs a vital organ transplant to survive, that doesn't justify you going and killing someone to harvest their organs. And just because you know there is a family in need, you are not justified in robbing a bank just to help feed that starving family. You must find ethical ways to resolve these issues. Just to jump in on that, this is where the entire field of ethics and even meta-ethics comes into play, where ethicists will debate and compare different ethical scenarios. Scott Ray has given a really good way to think through this in his books on ethics. And he uh, talks about, you know, um, make sure that you compare and contrast all the solutions first, um, including checking the facts and determining what the possible outcome will be uh, before you make the ethical or before you make the decision. So, for example, in the case of abortion, yeah, it might be a very easy thing to do to get an abortion, but at the same time, it doesn't mean that it's the right thing to do. For example, if somebody decided that the best way to help alleviate their poverty that they're in was to kill their two-year-old, we would not support them in doing so. We would actually say they should look for another option first and should be prevented from killing their two-year-old. So many times in issues like abortion, many times, and this is a very easy mistake to make, actually, some people will jump to the easiest solution that makes the most sense emotionally. And as Scott Ray points out, he gives a, a little bit of a quirky title for it. He says, don't let your sleep well factor influence your decision-making on this. Just because you could sleep well about the decision you made doesn't necessarily mean you made the right decision. Uh, there are other factors that need to come into play in order to determine that you made the right decision. And sometimes we could still feel very uncomfortable with the decision you made, even if it is the right decision. Now, in the case of abortion, the humanity of the unborn needs to be front and center whenever considering the ethical dilemmas posed by abortion. So as we talked about when we discussed um, the hard cases a few weeks ago, the humanity of the unborn does need to be front and center. However, at the same time, the humanity of the pregnant woman also needs to be front and center. Since we wouldn't kill the woman to alleviate somebody else's suffering, then we shouldn't apply, let her kill her child to alleviate her own suffering. We should find a way to help her alleviate her suffering while doing the morally right thing. Yeah, and another way in which we can kind of see the... I don't know if it's necessary and necessarily an anti-intellectualism in our culture. I mean, there are some anti-intellectual views which kind of permeate our culture, such as moral relativism and relativistic truth. But I believe it was the ancient Greeks who used to actually believe that there was no, when it comes to ethics, that there's no distinction between knowing something and acting on it, that if you know something, you should act on it. And today, you, you have to do more than make a, a logical case for something. You, you need more in order to spur people in, into action because just arguing that something should be done because 
because there's this huge violation of human rights going on is not enough anymore to spur people into action when it used to be. And so this is just another way in which we we see that people are, um, that people feel emotionally and they kind of divorce that from thinking because you can think about something, but that doesn't necessarily spur you into action. You know, I think, I wonder if it also has something to do with the massive, existence or the fact that science has such a front and center relevance in our culture that people almost think purely in scientific terms when when it comes to ethics ethics can be informed by empirical and scientific research but science and empirical research doesn't trump ethics so i think when many people get confused by is with science you can sometimes solve a problem with certainty such as like with a mathematical formula or with experimentation. But when it comes to ethics, you're not going to have a material or empirical outcome that you're looking for that might make you feel good about it. And in fact, actually, when ethics comes up, many times it is a heart issue. So it does both the intellect and the emotional aspect come into play. Yeah, and I, I think back to when we had Dr. Delgado on the show, when he talked about how doctors and scientists have moved from an Aristotelian sort of ethical view to a utilitarian one. And so the Aristotelianism would, would show that there's, that there's no divorcing, uh, there's no divorcing a not from an is that if you recognize something is wrong, then you act on it. Or if you, re- if you recognize that something should be a certain way, especially if it if it involves human beings and human beings are obligated to act a certain way in accordance with how a thing is. And so this idea that you can divorce that comes back from, from David Hume, who argued that there is a distinction between what one ought to do and what something is. And so utilitarianism, I think just kind of spurs from that and that you no longer, uh, you no longer look at what is the right thing to do based on, based on the way things are. You look at, you know, what's the, the greatest, uh, amount of good you can do for the greatest number of people, but then in that case, people who are not part of your equation suffer, and so you're doing wrong to those people just because har- harming them does good to a greater number of people. And so I often think of doctors and scientists who do modern human experimentation, not on you know black people or Jews like they used to, but now on human embryos, and nobody is bothered by that because even though scientifically human embryos are human beings, they, you know we can deny that they're persons, and we can experiment on them at will now and no one's going to say anything because we've dehumanized them to the point where we would say that we can experiment on them and not just experiment regarding killing them for stem cells or trying to work toward genetic enhancement but doing all sorts of crazy things which which should be seen as unethical you know like combining humans with animals trying to make human animal hybrids and so i often think of uh, dr ian malcolm from jurassic park who's who said a wonderful quote and i use it all the time that when he was talking to uh, to dr hammond about about trying to bring dinosaurs back from back from extinction he said your scientists were so preoccupied with whether or not they could that they didn't stop for a second to wonder about whether or not they should and i just think that's a wonderful quote and i think that's completely apt for our society today yeah that is a very good quote i like i actually like to use that quote also i didn't know exactly who said it in the movie but i do think it is very relevant especially when it comes to bioethical issues in fact actually robert george and christopher tolleston they actually paraphrase that quote in their book, Embryo, A Defense of Human Life. Something else that also comes up, just one other problem with uh, utilitarian ethics that Scott Ray points out is that 
you kind of have to be divine in order to be a correct utilitarian and that you have to have future knowledge that this is going to end up working in the end. Because if you don't and you actually inflict suffering pointlessly, then you've acted in a morally wrong way. And since none of us on this earth are divine, then we cannot know whether one of our actions will actually be a moral good. So, for example, there's the utilitarian argument that's been made for abortion lately. In fact, actually, when we were doing the Justice for All outreach back in May in Los Angeles, I had several people make this comment to me, and they said, well, even if the unborn is a fully valuable human person like you or me, we should still allow, say, a very poor mother to kill that child because the child will grow up and suffer. So, in a sense, it would be a mercy killing. Well, I recently I asked uh, Dr. Pat Lee, who wrote the book Abortion and Unborn Human Life, and I asked him about this, that really that assumes a lot. That assumes that because the child may suffer, and a lot of times I think a lot of people will bring up studies from the social sciences, which are not actual ethics. It's just uh, statistical studies. So, for example, a child who is a member of a minority group is born into a single-parent household that is in poverty, they have a higher statistical likelihood of, say, getting involved in crime, becoming a single parent themselves, or suffering in other ways. But that still doesn't justify killing them just because we think they might suffer. I mean, we don't have all the facts about what that child's future is going to be like. I mean, it, in a sense, we'd have to be divine in order to know whether or not that child is going to suffer in life. And frankly, I think it is very, in a sense, anti-choice to say to that child, I'm going to take your choice away from you, what kind of life you're going to live, and I'm going to make it for you. And since I think you're not going to live the life that I want to live, I'm going to kill you instead. So I think it's a very dangerous and a very morally abhorrent position to hold to. Well, yeah, because that also gets into the debate about quality of life versus sanctity of life, that people think if you're going to have a poor quality of life, or at least as I define a poor quality of life, it would be better to abort you. But the problem is that kind of view just assumes that there's no benefit to suffering at all, when in fact there are actual, actual real-world benefits to suffering, and there are things that, you know, someone who never suffers you know, doesn't doesn't live a very empathetic life because, you know, you have to suffer in order to understand the suffering of others. And so taking suffering away from someone is actually doing, you know, doing wrong to that kind of person. You know, not in the sense that, you know, we should, we should never strive to help someone who's truly in need, but uh, suffering is part of the human condition. And some people suffer more than others. That's unfortunate, but it's not something that can really be helped. And so saying that we should kill you to spare you suffering is really just, to really misunderstand what the whole point of suffering is about. Yeah, it really does assume that there is no future good that could come of suffering. I mean, we shouldn't inflict suffering on somebody in order to hopefully cause a future good, but at the same time, we also shouldn't ignore somebody's suffering. So like Mother Teresa, when she was in India, part of the cultural issue in India is when people are reincarnated, if they're reincarnated into the lower caste, into the poverty level, then they're supposed to stay there because they're working off a past bad behavior they had in a past life. Mother Teresa saw that and said, no, you're valuable. You created the image of God. And she picked them up and would love them instead of just casting them to the side of the road and saying, we well, need to work through this. And then I also think that, unfortunately, like we just mentioned, utilitarianism has become very prominent in our culture. 
which is ironic because it doesn't really work with relativism, which is also very prominent in our culture. But Jeremy Bentham, who's one of the first thinkers to articulate utilitarian ethics, his whole point was that life should be measured on a continuum of pleasure and pain. And the problem is that's not really what life is all about. There can be a very pleasurable activity that is also very immoral. And there can also be a very painful activity that is very morally good. So like say military service, it can be very painful. You go away from your family, your home country, you may be injured or die as a result, but it is a morally just behavior to serve in the military to protect your family back home. Likewise, pleasure can feel very good, but it doesn't mean that it is good. Adultery might feel very good, but it doesn't mean you're doing something right. So we've been talking today about more more about argumentation, and we reviewed log some logical fallacies a little bit, and then we talked about how to engage intellectually versus emotionally. So I would like to thank you again for listening, and I'd like to thank Nathan, of course, for coming on and joining me to talk about this issue. If you appreciate the information that we that we talked about in this uh, in this episode, then we would just ask that you share it around Facebook, Twitter, wherever you frequent on social media, and rate and review us on our Facebook page and on iTunes. Now, coming up here in just under two weeks, I'm going to be in Dallas, Texas, at the Bible and Beer Consortium, debating whether or not we have a right to die with Matt Delahunty, an atheist internet personality. Uh, that's next Friday, September eighth. Or actually, I guess it'd be this coming Friday once once this episode airs. And that's going to be at around 6 p.m. And so if you happen to be in the area, Dallas-Fort Worth or somewhere nearby, come on out. I'd love to see it. Now, this is a weekly podcast, and it takes a lot of work to put it together, to put together a podcast each week on top of all the other work that I do in the pro-life movement. As Greg Cunningham of Center for Bioethical Reform says, there are more people working full-time to kill unborn babies than there are people working full-time to save them. I subsist off of donations from financial supporters. People like you keep me being able to do the work that I do. If you like what we're doing with this podcast and would like to support my work as a full-time pro-life advocate, you can go to www.prolifetraining.com, which is the Life Training Institute website and click on donate in the menu on the top. You can give a one-time gift or you can give a monthly gift. Just be sure to put my name in the notes section so that Life Training Institute knows to put your donation into my account. And if you'd like to donate to this podcast specifically, you can also indicate that in the notes section. Donations are also tax deductible. Now next week, I'm going to be joined by Aaron and we're going to begin a three-part series looking at Willie Parker's recent book, Life's Work, A Moral Argument for Choice. We're going to be talking next week about Parker's scientific statements and responding to those. And then we'll, we'll be responding to the rest of his book in the, next, uh, in the next two weeks. So once again, I'd like to thank you for joining us, and we'll see you next time.
Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky. Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.